It's been in the news a lot lately. What is a revival? To revive means to give new strength or energy to restore to life or consciousness. A revival. Of course, we're talking about a spiritual revival. I remember reading an amazing fact a number of years ago in 1986. A two-year-old girl in Utah, her name was Michelle Funk, she was just left alone for a few moments. Her parents took their eyes off her, and she fell into a very fast-moving, very cold creek outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. And when they recovered her body, she had been underwater for 66 minutes. Well, they took her as quickly as they could to the children's hospital, the primary children's hospital there in Salt Lake, and the doctor said, we're going to try a method that's worked before, but never this long, where they kept her cold, but they cycled her blood outside of her body to slowly warm her blood. And incredibly, after about 20 minutes, her eyes flickered and fluttered, and pretty soon she regained consciousness. She was in the hospital for several days, but was finally um, sent home with no cognitive problems and has grown into a healthy adult. Now that's what you call revival. When someone is dead, or at least they're lifeless and cold, and they are warmed and revived. Now that's a physical body, but the church is a body too, you know. And sometimes we are cold, and we need reviving. Almost worse than being cold is being lukewarm. She survived because she was cold. Did you know that? If they had warmed her too soon, there would have been brain damage. They've said they've had people that have drowned in very cold water, and because it was cold water, they're able to resuscitate them. Jesus said, I wish you were hot or cold, but if you're lukewarm, that's very dangerous. Ephesians chapter 2, I'm going to read verse 1, 4, and 5. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Twice he says, he talks about being dead. We need revival, we need resurrection. Because before Christ, we are dead in trespasses in sins. This is why Jesus told that man, let the dead bury the dead. There's a lot of people in the world, most of them, that are spiritually dead. And we need to be resuscitated. We need to be brought back to life. Now, even after you become a Christian, you need constant reviving. In the news, we've heard a lot. Well, let me just do a, a survey and just find out how many of you are aware of something that's been in the news called the Asbury Revival. Let me see your hands if you heard about this. Some of you haven't heard about it. That's interesting. It's probably good if you haven't heard. That means you stay off social media and you're not watching the news, which is okay. But if you were watching, you know that they're in a school there in Asbury University in Kentucky a spontaneous prayer meeting broke out with some students praying and uh, they more and more gathered and they said they're having a revival in the chapel and more came and they were praying 24 hours a day, seven days a week and then they began to share everything with their friends on social media 
Just on TikTok, there were 70 million people that viewed it. There were well over 100 million views of these students on the campus, and then they were trying to see this replicate in other places. The media came pouring into the town, even secular media, Washington Post, New York Times, as well as all the Christian papers. Between 50 and 70,000 people came to this little town that normally has 6,000 people, totally overwhelming their infrastructure. So finally, after two weeks, the president of the university said, we believe the revival should go on, but you need to take it back to your respective homes and other places. We need to resume our school. And um, it received a lot of attention as a great revival. Now, personally, I don't think it meets the biblical definition of revival. That doesn't mean I don't think that God was working and people have asked me, was that a real revival? And you know, typically, you, know, you gotta be very careful about dismissing something that could be the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, Gamaliel, in Acts chapter five, when he was talking about the apostles, he told the other men of the Sanhedrin, be careful what you say to these men and let them alone. If this plan is the work of men, it'll come to nothing. But if it's the work of God, don't fight it or you'll be found to fight against God. So if something is of God, you want to be very careful. But I would call it a spiritual awakening. Um, there's renewed interest. We're going to talk about what real revival is biblically. Where do we find our answer for what the definition is? It's in the Bible. Amen? We'll find out from what the Bible says. I think it was Carl Sandburg who said, a tree is best measured when it's down. It's when you look back on history, you can find out. And there will be fruit. Jesus said you'll know them by their what? by their fruits. And so that'll be clear enough. I'm, I'm fascinated with it because whenever I hear Christians saying we're having a revival, you know what my thought is, I want in. I'm thinking, I want, I want revival. The Holy Spirit's moving. And that's why so many people came pouring from overseas to this little town because there's a yearning in the hearts of so many Christians for real Christian life. You ever feel that? You don't want to just be a nominal Christian. You want the real thing. Sometimes we grow up in the church and someone said we get just enough to inoculate us from ever getting the real thing. And uh, to, to feel the moving of the Spirit, and it's not just feeling, but to experience a transformation, the new birth. Old things are passed away. All things are made new. To study this subject, there's a number of revivals we could look at. I want you to go in your Bibles to the second book of Kings, second Kings there in the Old Testament. We're gonna start with verse one. <clears throat> Tells about one of the great revivals that took place in the nation of Israel. And it began with a young king by the name of Josiah. Josiah's name means Jehovah upholds. And just reading the first verse as it's introduced, you can understand that he was the greatest king. Now, I don't mean greatest in that he was most wealthy or the wisest, that would be Solomon. I don't mean he was the greatest king in that he was the most courageous, that would be David probably. But he was the greatest and he was the most dedicated. And this is his epitaph as well. You look in verse one, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he walked in the ways of his father, David. He did not walk in the way of his father, Amnon, but his great, 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 great grandfather, David. He did not walk in the way of his grandfather, Manasseh, who was the most wicked king. 
Isn't that interesting? But he walked in the ways of David. He did not turn aside to the right hand or the left. Then you read at the end of 2 Kings, verse 25. I'm sorry, this is 2 Kings 23, verse 25. Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might. What's the great commandment? Love the Lord with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. This is a king that did that according to all the law of Moses. Nor after him did any arise like him. It says there was none like him before him, none like him after him. Totally dedicated. Died a young man, 39, killed by the Egyptian army in a battle. But um, during his reign, he was a very dedicated king and Israel experienced a tremendous revival. Now you read about it in this chapter. Go back to 2 Kings chapter 22. And we don't have time to read everything in chapter 22 and 23, so I'm going to highlight what's happening. As Josiah grew up, and he received a lot of his instruction from the priest, he noticed that the house of God had been neglected, especially during the 55-year reign of Manasseh. Manasseh actually was worshiping idols. He even offered his children to pagan gods, and they had brought idols into the temple, and it had become dilapidated. And he had this yearning. He'd been praying. He wanted to restore the worship of the God of his fathers, the God Jehovah. And so you're, there's seven points in real revival. Let me tell you ahead of where I'm going so you'll be able to track when I'm almost done and you can uh, automatically set your microwave to finish your dinner. So there's seven points. You've got a restoring of the temple, a repairing of the temple, rediscovering the word, repenting of sin, renewing the covenant, reforming their lives, restoring worship, and rejoicing in their hearts. This is what happens in this chapter. They go from this pagan worship that he inherits to a total restoration of true worship, and this is what revival is. It's a tangible change in the kingdom, and that's including the kingdom of God, which is you. So he restores the temple. You look in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 5. He said, we need to gather the money to repair things and let them give the offerings to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages to the house, to the carpenters and the buildings and the masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. You know, the Bible says you and I are living stones in the temple of God. And he recognized the need for a renovation to restore and repair things. And so this is like spending time in prayer. You know, there is no revival that has ever happened without prayer. And even this revival in Asbury, if, if that's what it is, it began with some students who stayed behind after chapel, four or five, started to pray. Others joined them. And it just continued to build. And the great revival awakenings in America and in uh, the Welsh revival in England and the ones you study even in Africa, someone was praying. It begins with prayer. And if you want revival in your life, pray. Spend time in prayer. By the way, let me just pause right here. There's a quote here from Moody I'll read in a little bit. But he said, basically, it's God's plan that we should be reviving all the time. 
And if we're reading the Bible, and if we are praying, and if we are sharing our faith, you will experience continual revival. Cycles of revival are normal. In this life, because we're fighting death all the time, you must constantly be reviving. That's going to be the case until you get to heaven. And that will be the permanent revival. Right? When your body doesn't, it doesn't die anymore. I mean, right now I'm really happy driving around. You see all those spring trees are beginning to explode with flowers. You notice that? It's a revival in nature, and it's going to die next fall. It'll need to revive again. So don't feel bad if you're not always revived. Because it's a part of life that, you know, gravity, you've got to constantly get up in the morning or it's going to pull you down. You must resist it. There is sin in the world. There's a devil and you must constantly be resisting the lower nature and the flesh and the enemy and seeking for the presence of God. And as you are exposed to the presence of God, as you are renewed constantly, you're being revived. So this is something we should always be striving for as individuals. But what's really neat is when you get a body of people that are revived, and then you have something called Pentecost. When God's people come together and they pray together and the Holy Spirit is poured out in a, an extra supernatural way. You get an extra portion of the latter rain, Holy Spirit. Amen, don't we all want that? It's gonna happen again before Jesus comes. The real McCoy. So they spend time in prayer, cleansing the sanctuary, you might say. At this time, Josiah is about 26 years old. In the process of cleaning out the temple that had been so terribly neglected, one of the most amazing passages in the entire Bible says, the priest of the Lord is in the house of the Lord and going through some stuff in one of the storage rooms, it doesn't say specifically what happened, he calls over Shaphan the scribe, Hilkiah the priest, and he says, looky here. Now I'm paraphrasing. It doesn't say looky. <laughs> he said, I've found the book of the Lord in the house of the Lord. By the way, I hope you go to a church where you can find the word of God in the house of God. That's very important. But isn't it amazing that the priest would say, well, look, I found the word of the Lord in the temple. Well, you hope you'd find it there. Doesn't that imply they'd misplaced it? Or they'd forgotten about it? And it doesn't say that I found a Bible. It's, he says, he uses the word the. He said, I found the book of the Lord. He had found the original manuscript probably of Deuteronomy that Moses had put in the temple. It had probably been beside the ark. You remember the, he wrote Deuteronomy. He said, put this by the law in the ark of the covenant. And somehow it got separated and it was put in a jar or a box or something and he found it. That to me is astounding. He said, they found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. This is by the hand of Moses. Talk about a valuable document for Israel to misplace. You want to hear an amazing fact? In 1989, a Philadelphia financial uh, advisor was going through a flea market and he found a picture. He didn't care much for the picture. It was some faded old painting of a farm, but the frame looked really nice, but it was pretty old. So he bought it, $4, took it home, and trying to take the picture out of the frame, the frame fell apart. But he noticed that between the painting and the backing of the picture, there was a folded document. He pulled it out. It was a copy of the Declaration of Independence. 
one of only 500 that were originally printed back when it was first written. Only 22 survive today. And so he sold it at the Southby's auction for $2.42 million. Now this was a copy of the original. And look how valuable it is. God's people had lost the original. So they found it. You can imagine the excitement. And the scribe couldn't even wait to take it to the king. It says he read it. Now, reading the book of Deuteronomy takes a couple hours. He read the whole thing. It may not take that long. Maybe 90 minutes. So, how do we have revival? A rediscovery of the word of God. And it may happen in the house of God. Romans 10, 17, you cannot be saved without faith. What's the Bible say? How does faith come? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. As you listen to the word of God, it does something to your faith. Can you say amen? amen. We are saved by knowing Jesus. Where is he revealed? In the word. Christ is the word. As the word is preached and proclaimed and exalted, Jesus said you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. People are saved by knowing the word of God, the Bible. Now that was one thing that made me suspect that what was happening at the university there in Kentucky, while it was a spiritual awakening, it wasn't really a revival, is because as you look at all the media, it was just people singing and praying. There was no preacher proclaiming the word. If they did, I missed it. It was a very small part of whatever happened there. But you look at the great revivals, what happens at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit's poured out? Peter stands up and he preaches. What happens, biggest revival in history is Nineveh. Jonah goes in and he starts to preach. And his whole city is revived. And you'll see in history, I've been studying some of the great revivals in history. You've probably heard of George Whitfield. Wow. He's considered by many to be one of the greatest English preachers in history. He had studied acting as a teenager. He was converted. He had a naturally powerful voice. Benjamin Franklin in his autobiography said, I heard it, but I didn't believe it until I saw it with my own eyes. This one man could be distinctly heard by 30,000 people. Franklin doesn't mention without artificial amplification because they'd not invented that yet. But I want you to know he was heard by 30,000 people without an artificial speaker system. What's going to happen to me now if they turn that off? Don't try it. <laughs> I've got a wimpy voice. He had a booming voice. Matter of fact, one actor that lived back when George Whitfield was preaching heard him preach, and he said, he, he said, I would give, I would give a hundred guineas if I could say the word, oh, like Whitfield. He said, he can say the word Mesopotamia and bring the whole congregation to tears by saying Mesopotamia. I don't know how he did it. I can't do it. I never heard it. But he would go through towns and there'd have these revivals for the preaching of the word and you would see great changes in the community. So that's something that happens. It's a proclamation of the word. Psalm 119 verse 88. Karen showed me this this week. She knew I was preparing. Revive me according to your loving kindness so that I might keep the testimony of your mouth. Prayer for revival. And here's that quote by Moody. If they can only get back to the word of God, then we will not have just here and there a revival, but we will be in revival all the time. It is those Christians that are feeding on the word of God that are revived all the time.
So it must be a rediscovery of the word. Point three, that then leads to a repentance of sin. It was after Isaiah heard the angel say, holy, 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 he said, woe is me. He heard the word of God coming from the throne of God and it led him to repentance. Second Chronicles 34 19. Oh, by the way, Second Kings 22 is pretty much the same story as Second Chronicles 34. These are two parallel chronicles of the kings and they uh, match each other, but not completely. They, some give more information than the other. So talking about King Josiah and this revival, Second Chronicles 34 19. Thus it happened when the king heard these words of the law that he tore his clothes. One of the things that leads to revival is a proclamation of the law of God. Spurgeon, Luther, Whitfield, Moody, Wesley, Finney, all the great revivalists said you're not going to hear the gospel until you first hear the law. Because by the law comes the conviction of sin. There's a great book called The Great Controversy, page 478. It is only as the law of God is restored to its rightful position that there can be a revival. So I didn't hear a lot of proclamation about the law of God coming out of Kentucky. But I think the Holy Spirit may still be working in the hearts of those students. But it's not what you would call a revival. The law of God must be exalted. The Bible says, John, Jesus speaking, John 16, 8, and when he has come, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. How did Jonah get a revival? He said, 40 days in this city is going to be destroyed. That's called judgment. <laughs> and they repented and they fasted and they prayed and they put on sackcloth and ashes. There was a mighty repentance that swept through the city. Peter preaches about Jesus, Acts chapter 2. And he says, repent. Let every one of you be baptized. And, and they said, what do we do? He said, repent. How did John the Baptist bring a revival again? A preacher preaching the word. He said, repent. What was the first thing Jesus said? He went out preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is part of a revival. A call to repentance. And that repentance is going to be repentance of specific sin. It's not always just general. There's a beautiful book called Selected Messages. First Selected Messages, page 121. A revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all of our needs. To seek this should be our third work. I didn't say that. This is our first work. There must be earnest effort to obtain. You mean I got to do something? Yeah. There must be earnest effort to obtain the blessing of the Lord, not because God is not willing to bestow his blessing on us, but because we're unprepared to receive it. Got to clean out the temple. Our heavenly Father is more willing to give his Holy Spirit to those that ask him than our earthly parents to give good gifts to their children. But it is our work by confession, humiliation, repentance and earnest prayer to fulfill the conditions upon which God has promised to grant his blessing. A revival need be expected only in answer to prayer. There's something that we must do if we want that revival. And part of that is to pray and to choose willfully to repent of our sins. Charles Finney said, he was a great revivalist, 
he was a lawyer that was converted and he had just a very organized approach to revival. That's something else about revivals. They notice the revivals that happen through history have been very organized. The idea of people, you know, jumping up and down and dancing and falling all over the place, that's usually not followed by a lot of godly living. That's sort of like a sensational experience. And something else I noted, and again, I'm just observing, and, but uh, a lot of the media, when they were talking about the revival of, at the university there, this, they'd interview people, and everyone that got the microphone, they said, I feel this, I feel that. There's such a feeling. Do you feel it? I walked in the room and I felt. I thought, that's okay to feel. Nothing wrong with that. I hope if you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you feel different. But if it's only feeling, then it's just like I want this tangible experience of feeling. Listen to what happens here. Oh, by the way, Charles Finney, I started and never finished. He said, revival is the predictable outcome of God's people turning to him with fasting, prayer, and repentance. He said, you fast, you pray, you repent, there will be revival. That's all he preached as he went, and he was followed by revival. I heard stories where Finney, he was so full of the Holy Spirit that he went to this factory, and he would just walk in. The owner of the factory brought him in so he could see the workers. He wanted to invite them to the meeting, and in the process of inviting to the meeting, one woman would start weeping, and another one would start weeping, and they all started crying. He was so holy that they were convicted by his presence and the Holy Spirit in the room. Second Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name, this is chapter 7, verse 14, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. How? By pouring out the Holy Spirit. The latter rain. He's talking about a time of drought. He said, I will heal their land. I'll send the rain. And if we're having a spiritual drought, then we need to turn from our sins, humble ourselves, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways. God said, then I will do this, and I will hear their prayers. Second Chronicles 34, because when Josiah heard the word of God, it says he tore his clothes and he repented. He heard the judgments they read in Deuteronomy. You read chapter, don't do it now, but it's, it could be pretty heavy. You read chapter 28 of Deuteronomy, and he says, if you obey me, you'll be blessed when you go out, you'll be blessed when you come, and you'll be blessed in the field, you'll be blessed in the house, in the town. Blessed, blessed, blessed. And he said, if you disobey me, you're going to be cursed. Cursed when you go out, cursed when you come in, cursed when you sit down, cursed when you rise up. And Josiah heard Hilkiah reading that to him, or actually uh, Shaphan the scribe read it to him. And it says, you will be carried away captive. You'll be conquered by your enemies. There'll be famine. Everything that Moses said would happen as the cursing, Josiah could look back and see this is what's happened to God's people. Exactly what he predicted. Why? Because they turned away from God and disobeyed. And the king, when he heard that, he said, wow. He tore his clothes. He repented. He began to weep. A prophetess. Interesting, there was a prophetess connected with the message. Prophetess sent a message to the king because your, her name was Hulda, by the way, because your heart was tender. And again, I'm reading in 2 Chronicles 34, 27. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. And you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and you went. I'm not recommending you all tear your clothes right now. That was sort of a sign of, of humiliation and, and repentance back then. That's one thing is some people 
They might need to rend their clothes because they're worshiping fashion. And when a king tears his royal robes, it's a sign of humility. And you went before me. I have heard you, says the Lord. Surely I will gather you to your fathers and you will be gathered to your grave in peace. So during your reign, because you've turned back to me, I'm going to keep the promises and I will bless you. You will have peace during your reign. First John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. You know, you can't have a revival without first having a death. If someone is already always alive and you say, they're revived, you go, wait a second, you're implying they were dead. Isn't that right? And so as soon as you say we need revival, you must first admit that something's dead. And that means we must humble ourselves, confess our sins. The next thing that happens is when the king does that, when he gets done crying, he dries his eyes, says, now I'm going to do something about it. I am going to bring the people together. We are going to renew our covenant that was made back at Mount Sinai to follow the Lord. And you read here in 2 Kings 23, verse 3, the king brought them all to the temple. They had rebuilt the temple. He stood by the pillar and he renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord, to keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all of his heart and with all of his soul thus confirming the words of the covenant written in the book, then all of the people pledge themselves to the covenant. See what they're doing here? A covenant means you make an agreement. They had broken the agreement. They want to renew the agreement. Say, Lord, we want to take you up on your promises. We're claiming your promises. We are going to be your people. By your grace, obey your word. And they made that pledge. Now what happens next? Then there's reformation. Now don't miss this. First, you must make a decision. I am going to turn back to God and obey him. When you make that decision, he then gives you the power for reformation. But first, you must pledge to renew the covenant. Someone said that uh, Charles Finney, when he traveled and preached, and as I mentioned, these different revivalists like Moody, great man of God, Finney, Whitfield and the others, uh, they, their theology, you know, they were Christians. Their theology may have disagreed with each other a little bit, but they knew the Lord in their day. Even Luther, they brought great revivals. Now, my, though they may not have been perfect people, if you know what I'm saying. Finney, or it's written in history, nearly everywhere Charles Finney preached, revival broke out. Entire communities were changed by the power of God. After Finney had preached in those communities, Saloons closed, theft stopped, all kinds of vice and evil came to an end. The revival fire of God swept through the communities, cleansing everything in its path. There is transformation, which leads to point five. There is reformation. There is a reform in their lives. Uh, you've heard of the great Protestant Reformation. Well, it seems like for many the protest is over and the reformation is over too and we need a new reformation meaning there's reforming in the life second kings 23 <clears throat> now take a deep breath i mean if you want to find a young king that was serious about making change here he is and the king ordered hilkiah the high priest the priest next in rank and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the lord 
all the articles made for Baal and the Ashereth and all the starry hosts. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley. And he took the ashes to Bethel. In fact, I'm going to go here real quick. I just want to read this. I usually am reading to you from my notes. But I want you to notice what it says here in um, 2 Kings chapter 23. This young king is like a royal tornado. This whole chapter is dedicated to reformation. You look in 2 Kings 23, verse 3. The king stood by the pillar and he made a covenant before the Lord to follow him. Verse 5, he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained. He got rid of some people that shouldn't have been ordained to burn incense. And those who burned incense to Baal and to the sun and to the moon and the constellations. Verse 7, I'm jumping quickly. He tore down the ritual booths of the perverted persons. Some of your versions will say sodomites. Where that were in the house of the Lord. This had come into the house of the Lord. Is that happening in the churches today? World churches, yeah. He tore, he, and then it goes on, it says, he broke down the high places. I'm in verse 8. Go to verse 10. He defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or his daughter pass through the fire. They've been sacrificing their children. It's kind of like abortion. Then he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun, got involved in sun worship. Last part of that verse, he burned the chariots of the sun with fire. Verse 12, the altars that were on the roof, they had altars on the roof of the temple they had made. The king broke down and pulverized there and threw the dust in the brook Kidron. What did Moses do with the golden calf? Ground it to powder and threw it in the creek. Then he told the people to drink it. Go to verse 14. He broke in pieces the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images and filled their places with the bones of men. So they wouldn't do it again. He defiled it. He broke down, I'm in verse 15, the last half. He broke down and he burned the high places and crushed it to powder and he burnt the wooden images. He's going through just pulverizing all this false worship. Verse 19, now Josiah took away all the shrines and the high places that were in the cities of Samaria. So you know what he does? He not only does a revival where he purges all of the sinful practices, and it gives you all the specifics here, from the land of Judah and from Jerusalem. He got rid of the false priests. He went up then to Samaria where Israel had been. Israel at this point had been carried away captive, just like it had been foretold. They'd been carried away by the Assyrians. But he goes up there and he destroys the altars that had been made by King Jeroboam. And he burns men's, the priest's bones on the spot so it would be defiled and they never do it again. Then he goes into Samaria. He goes through the whole land of Israel and he purges it from everything pagan. This young king said, we're going to turn back to God and he specifically got rid of the sins of idolatry and others that we had mentioned. That's what you call a reformation. Read here in Ezekiel 33, verse 15. What is a reformation? If the wicked restores the pledge gives back what he has stolen. I heard about when um, Whitfield went through a town and did a revival up in Ireland that a factory had so much stolen goods returned they had to build sheds to house it. Their employees had been pilfering things from the factory for years and they were so convicted under preaching they all brought it back and they had so much they couldn't even hold it all. 
the return goods that had been stolen. I, Ezekiel says when there's been a revival, the wicked will give back, give back what he's stolen. A lot of people I know, they say, I've accepted Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. All your sins are forgiven. They come to church, they smile, and they still have their neighbor's hedge trimmer in their garage they borrowed two years ago. And you say, but I asked God to forgive me. Well, you bring it back, and he'll forgive you. The Bible says, if you bring your gift to the altar and you have aught against your brother, leave your gift, go be reconciled to your brother, then bring your gift. Sometimes reformation isn't just taking back what you've stolen. It means righting some wrongs. It means writing some letters and apologizing. Go to Ezekiel 18, verse 7. I'm doing these out of order, sorry. If he has not oppressed anyone, but he's restored to the debtor his pledge, he's robbed no one by violence, he's given his bread to the hungry and covered the naked with clothing, if he's not exacted usury or taken any increase, but he's withdrawn his hand from iniquity and executed true judgment between man and man, if he has walked in my statutes and kept my judgments faithfully, he is just. He will surely live, says the Lord. He's not talking about living physically because you're all doing that. He's talking about he will have eternal life. Pastor Doug, is that righteousness by works? No. It's saying that when you repent of your sins and you accept the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus, it will be followed by reformation. If there's no reformation, it's not the real gospel. Real gospel is going to see tangible change in the church. That's when there's revival. When people love each other, they put away their differences. You'll know them by their fruits, Jesus said. Then there was a restoration of worship, point number six. 2 Kings 23, verse 21, the king commanded all the people saying, you know, since I've been reading the book of Moses, I notice we're neglecting the holy days. We're neglecting the feasts of the Lord. And as the king commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant, and it says they kept the Passover the way it had been designed. And you know what the Passover is all about? It's all about accepting Jesus, the blood of the Lamb, and the angel of judgment passes by. And it's, but it's remembering the holy time. Has God given us a holy time every week? Has that been forgotten? And it says such a Passover shulery had never been kept ever since the days of the judges who judged Israel nor in the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. They had forgotten about the lamb. The Passover was all about the lamb. And sometimes we forget that. So part of revival is not only doing what's right, it's in giving God your time. Coming to church. This was a holy convocation. By the way, every week we have something the Bible calls a holy convocation. It's called a holy assembly. We come together, and I know that during the pandemic, we were all maintaining distance to try to keep safe, or at least most of us. But uh, I think we can get past that now. The Bible tells us, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Something happens when we get together. When the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, they were all together in one place of one accord, and God poured out the Holy Spirit. There's something to be said for that. Can you say amen? amen? We need to come together. Something happens. We're in a, in a room together. The Holy Spirit can descend in a place. And when they returned to obeying that, it says, point seven, 
Then there was rejoicing of heart. Humble yourselves in the sight of God and he will lift you up. Look in Deuteronomy 16, verse 14. And you will rejoice in your feast. And you and your sons and your daughters, your male servant, your female servant. Now where do we see that phrase? Your sons, your daughters, your male, your female servant. Isn't that in the Sabbath commandment? Remembering to come together. Is this supposed to be a day of mourning or a day of joy? Is the Sabbath a happy occasion? When the prodigal son came home, the Holy Spirit got a hold of him and he came home, what did the father do? Rejoiced. He was dead, he's now alive. That's called revival. Right? He was lost and now he's found. And so we should rejoice when God's Spirit is moving and there's revival. Well, friends, I want the real thing. How about you? I say, Lord, you've done it before, do it again. You know, the Bible tells us you can have true revivals, you can have false revivals. You know, Spirit of Prophecy warns us that in the last days, just before God pours out his Spirit in latter rain power, that the devil, anticipating this, will introduce a counterfeit revival. So, I don't know what's happening now. It seems there's been a lot of, this may not be it, but there, there's been a lot of religious interest. And uh, I just know I want the real thing. Amen? We need to prepare our hearts by prayer, repentance, writing what wrongs we can, where confession needs to be made, we should confess our sins, humble ourselves before the Lord, and He will lift us up. He will heal our land. Amen? <laughs>